I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Tuesday, September 25th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Speaking to the UN General Assembly today, the president of the United States tried out some of his A-list killer bits and sorry UN peacekeeping troops he slaughtered. In less than two years, my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. America's so true. (laughs) Didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. And then the president of the United States sat down before scores of journalists. They were gathered covering the leader of the free world's address to an institution whose preamble enumerates this ideal in its second line to regain faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small. And then they documented the president of the United States sitting next to the presumably bewildered president of Colombia, as the president of the United States said this. I mean, you, as, as watching this, as the president of, of a great country, Colombia, you must say, how is this possible? 36 years ago, nobody ever knew about it, nobody ever heard about it, and now a new charge comes up, and she said, well, it might not be him, and there were gaps, and she said she was totally inebriated, and she was all messed up, and she doesn't know it was him, but it might have been him. Oh, gee, let's not make him a Supreme Court judge because of that. This is a con game being played by the Democrats also. Just as United Nations is abbreviated as UN for clarity, so did the president seek to simplify his thesis. The Democrats are playing a con game, C-O-N. Which was not only a compelling argument, but it does underscore the point he had been making a few minutes earlier. To me, that was so believable. I understand college very well, and I understand being number one in your class, and I understand a lot of things. In fact, I do believe the president understands what the nomination is doing to his administration, his party, and his country. And it explains why he doesn't just withdraw Kavanaugh and get another jurist in there who is equally credentialed, who doesn't drag with him a raft of accusations, a jurist who's okayed by Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, which seems to be the necessary and sufficient condition for a Republican nominee to the high court. Just get someone where we don't have to always say allegedly before we mention a sentence involving his penis. Maybe even, crazy idea, the nominee without a penis. There are good ones around. Well, good according to Leonard Leo, which is the important thing. I'll tell you why he doesn't do this. He likes it. He likes the drama. He craves the chaos. He revels in the distraction. I would say many Republican administrations would communicate to Judge Kavanaugh, look, sorry, it was tough. Maybe it's not your fault. We tried. You're out. We're going to get someone else new in there. They'd want to avoid a knockdown, drag out war that that is waged along the lines that exactly line up with our social fissures, especially in advance of a midterm. 
those social fissures and that war, that's exactly why Trump got into this game in the first place. He knows that if he could spread just generalized loathing of our fellow man, and if he enables wild statements to be made so frequently we don't even notice, and if an undercurrent of victimization goes far and wide to corners you never thought would be touched by the president, then Trump knows he's executing his vision. And just look, it happened today. Because moments after he lashed out in New York City and mocked a potential sexual assault survivor, there, down the road in Philadelphia, there was Andrew Wyatt, the spokesman for the freshly handcuffed Bill Cosby. Wyatt said of the trial that resulted in a sentence of three to 10 years in prison for his boss, quote, this has been the most racist and sexist trial in the history of the United States. And then he brought it around to, yup, Judge Kavanaugh. It is no accident that the prosecutor still worked so close with anti-black and anti-male activist groups who tried to extort $100 million from Dr. Cosby in 2014 and continues to produce racist and sexual, sexist publicity against him through the 35 clients. What is going on in Washington today with Judge Kavanaugh as part of that sex war that Judge O'Neill, along with his wife, are a part of? Regarding the psychologist Kristen Dudley, she is a practitioner of mindfulness. This is an Eastern inspired practice that is controversial in the field of psychology. Kavanaugh sex, mindfulness, that's suspicious. What do you call such nonsense? I'd say it's somewhat presidential. On the show today, I spiel a little bit about standards of proof in the Kavanaugh case. But first, the film Eighth Grade is warm, awkward, honest, wrenching, a lovable, gangly teen of a movie. It currently has a well-deserved 98% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which just goes to show you that 2% of critics are mean girls or bullies. Stand-up comic Bo Burnham wrote and directed the film, Elsie Fisher stars, and they are both with me up next. Bo Burnham is a stand-up comedian who, when he stands up, he really stands up. What I'm saying is the guy is tall. Elsie Fisher is the star of his movie, Eighth Grade, and it is a role she was born to play, meaning she's been to eighth grade. They're both with me. Hello, guys. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having Hi, us. yeah. Okay, first of all, such a great movie. Let's start with the dialogue. Uh, lots of ums and ahs in uh, Kayla's speech. How was that written on the page, Bo? And then how did you come to interpret that, Elsie? Bo, you could go first. Yeah, I mean, it was written like that. It was the ums and the ahs were written into the script. And I mean, it wasn't written into the script with the intention of you better hit every um and ah and like and you know word perfect, but more to just give the kids permission to be inarticulate and to sort of tell them, you know, this is how we want it to sound. We don't want it to sound like you're some sort of, you know, perfectly articulate teen character. We want you to sound like how you normally sound, which is messy and and sort of all over the place. So then, Elsie, did you actually memorize the lines without the ums and ahs and just decide to inject a few? Or did you more get the gist of what the lines were and talk it in a more natural way, which is like if you hear me talk, I say um and ah. 
Yeah, I mean, like what Bo just kind of said, they were pretty word perfect with the ums and ahs written in. Um, so, I mean, I would just memorize the lines every morning. And I mean, if I got an um or an ah out of place, that wasn't the end of the world. Um, but I mean, it, it was written like that, so. The reason I ask that is specifically for the YouTube parts that so clearly commented on something that uh, just happened in the movie. Mm. You know, it's acting. You could do that. You could have done it a number of ways. You could have done, I don't know how you did it. You could have done all the YouTube scenes in one or two days. How'd you do it and what was the strategy? That is what we did. I mean, yeah. we recorded all the YouTube videos back to back to back on mm. one of the last days of the shoot. Um, I mean, that that is my job as a director is to know what the context is and just sort of briefly explain whatever scene we're in, sort of where the character's at. But for Elsie, and she did this always, was it, like her job is just kind of to have to just trust me and kind yeah. of throw herself into it. And, you know, don't worry about the totality of the movie. Don't worry about the entire movie when you're doing a scene. Just commit to the scene and what's happening right now. It's my job to sort of have a vision of the entire movie. Mm. It's only her job to have a vision of, you know, what's happening in yeah. every moment. And just kind of live Kayla's life for her, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Be honest about it. Right. Yeah. Hey guys, Kayla back here with another video. Uh, okay, so the topic of today's video is putting yourself out there. Um, okay, so like, what does that mean? Where is there? Well, there can be anywhere that you wouldn't usually go, you know, maybe because it's like weird or scary or um, something like that. Now, Bo, as a screenwriter and using these videos, on the one hand, it's a real great reflection of the lived reality of uh, kids that are Kayla's age. And in fact, I was just on your Twitter feed today, and there are a bunch of real people who tweet you their videos, and they're spot on. You capture reality. But I was wondering if there was any analog that you were thinking of, the purpose those videos showed. I was thinking it could be a few things. I don't know. Like, if you want to go highbrow, it could be something like a Greek chorus, or it could be like... At at the end of every episode of Doogie Howser, he perfectly mm. reflects upon his life. Was there anything, any function that they were serving that you thought of? You know, it, it really is just the more generic function of voiceover. I mean, I, I, voiceover is just such a huge part of a lot of teen movies. Right. Um, and I always thought, like, the voiceover isn't really doing what it should do, which is, like, rather than have the character be this, like, omniscient person that's, smart that like is completely in control of its narrative what if the voiceover was them trying to present themselves to, and and really I'm, I'm kind of talking backwards in this because the entire movie was inspired by watching videos of kids online and then I saw these videos of those kids and like the reason that the videos those kids are sending to me on Twitter are accurate is because I based the movie off of vlogs like that I watched hundreds of them and in watching those vlogs I thought like what if you were to watch this kid's real life and what if this vlog that I'm watching, which is clearly so manufactured and they're trying to present themselves, what if that was voiceover? So it just, for me, it's sort of flipping the idea of voiceover, which is usually in complete control on its head. The sort of unreliable narrator of like, you know, Fight Club and old noir stuff is like, you know, being applied to a teenage story. Right. And I do think with it's such a good point because there are so many movies, uh, 
Easy A or Clueless or movies where that main character has the voiceover and man is she sharp and man does she get the world and she uses the voiceover to communicate to the audience that like the audience themselves, she truly sees what's going on and you're yes. you're 100% subverting that. That's interesting. Well, just for me, it was, it was you know, it's a, it's a place to add more meaning and this is, this is not about like the story that we're watching only. It's really about like how this girl views herself. It's about how she would articulate her own story. It's about her telling her own story in a very specific way. So that was always just very, very interesting to me. And to me, that just really reflects, for me, what it means to be alive right now for anybody. We're all like living our lives and telling the story of our lives and failing to tell that story. And that those sort of meta layers, um, it was just a really concrete way to represent those in a kind of human way. People, I think, are probably going to listen to this and have heard three or four interviews with you because people who are into this movie are really into this movie. So mm. I, I know that you chose the girl character because the boys seem to be talking about video games online and the girls at least seem to be talking about things closer to what you wanted to talk about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was just like I felt a real like common interests with the girls, like just like existentially, like I feel like, like truly like they, they were thinking about themselves in the way I was thinking about themselves. They were very aware of being watched and seen and how they had to present themselves to the world. And they were wrestling with that. And that was sort of what I was wrestling with. So I just found a kinship with them. And that's sort of what made me be like, I think I can write a movie about this person because I feel like, I feel like she is struggling with the exact same thing I'm struggling with. She, she just happens to be an eighth grader and I happen to be not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Elsie, I wonder, my audience, just listeners should know, that Bo, before he gained fame as a stand-up, uh, I'll read the Boston Globe headline, St. John's Prep senior Bo Burnham, who shoots most of his videos in his bedroom, has landed a Hollywood agent and a booking on Comedy Central. That's actually the caption to a picture under the headline, Irreverent Songs Win Hamilton Youth a Cult Following. <laughs> so I w did you ever watch those videos, Elsie, of Bo? Yeah, I mean, it's creepy, but I'm probably one of his biggest fans. Wow. What is uh, anymore? Not anymore. You were at the time. Now I've <laughs> crashed down to earth. Yeah. Um... But yeah, I've, I've definitely seen like all of his videos, uh, the good and the bad. They're all good. No, no. I think they're all bad. So we'll meet in the middle somewhere. Elsie, <laughs> when you were making it, did you have a sense this thing's going to be special? How did it compare to other things in the process of actually making it? I mean, I didn't know what the end product was going to be like because, I mean, I didn't see anything until it actually like premiered at Sundance. Um and I had like zero faith in my own acting. I'm like, oh, cool. These people are just playing a joke on me. I mean, truly, it, it could have felt like that. Um, but like just the making of it was just like a really special thing to me personally. Because I mean, I got to know all these people that I like highly, highly respect and I'm just friends with. And like, I truly love them as people. And like, yeah, I didn't care if it was going to be good at the end, just getting to make this really cool project that was important to me was really special. Yeah, I don't know. The fact that it turned out to be good and people like it was like, yes, added bonus. Did you learn more about Bo from making the movie, uh, watching his uh, specials or, and videos, or doing like 300 interviews on the press circuit afterwards? Um, good question. I mean, it's, I think probably making the movie because I mean like, 
you know, I didn't actually know him as a person before that. And I think you can get a lot from the stand-up, but like, you know, that's also very much an act. I mean, it, it's expressing ideas that he thinks about, I guess. But, you know, like, I got to know him as a person. And I mean, like, I've related to his comedy, but I also relate to him on a much deeper level as, like, a human being. Um, and I mean, like, the interviews have been really fun, and that's been, like, I don't know, extending our friendship, I guess. Making the movie was really getting to know each other, and that was, like, part of the fun process of it, because both of us were just weird, anxious kids making this thing, and we're like, yeah. Um, so <laughs> being in the movie, not the process of it having this great reaction, but more just living that life and thinking about the ideas there. Do you think it affected you in school or with friends or socially? Like there are times when you reflect upon one of the themes that Bo was writing about, one of the things that you were acting out and it's affected your life. Yeah. I mean, the movie itself narratively, I I really related to, I mean, Kayla, especially, Yeah, I mean, it just made me reflect on my own social anxiety a lot and not even get over it, but be more accepting of it and and be able to joke about it with people, I guess. But I mean, like, like the actual process of making a movie and being around on a set, I think made me more like confident as a person, I guess. I don't know. I'd I'd never been a very social kid in school. (laughs) Surprise. But um, no, I mean, I, I was able to go into the school year and know like that wasn't life you know I had something else outside of it I had people I knew it really was like a reflective uh experience yeah uh Bo did you say everything you wanted to say with this movie I mean before anyone in the public saw it was your reaction look I don't know how it'll be received but this is what I wanted to do yeah I mean I liked it you know I felt like I (laughs) liked it and it was just because I liked the performances I mean that's what I watch in movies you know like are the people, you know, I don't watch like the themes or the cinematography. I mean, certainly not first. Like the thing I'm, ca- you know, I'm watching people and performances and I just love the performances so much. And it was, you know, it was the first thing I, I had worked on where I felt like I could really watch and enjoy it because I wasn't seeing myself. I was seeing the actors, the young actors and their performances. So, but, I, but yeah, I was very happy with it. And what we really did, we wanted to set out to make something for us that just didn't feel... It felt real, and uh, I, I think it felt real to us. Given that life deals you whatever it deals you, do you have um, a plan on what your career is going to look like over the next 10 years? Like, just how much comedy will you be doing? How many movies will you be doing? Anything else? Two comedies, three movies. Uh-huh. No. Um, <laughs> one will be a rom-com, one will be time traveling, and those are just the stand-up specials, Yeah. I don't, uh, you know, I'm not really planning on doing any stand-up anytime soon. Uh, I, you know, I hope to do another movie for sure at some point. I just, I hopefully will have an idea and then the idea will sort of dictate what happens. But uh, unfortunately, I'm in the phase right now of just sitting Mm -hmm. around screaming at the heavens to give me an idea. (laughs) Really? You don't have, I I just always thought of you as, because when I see your specials, you're doing four things usually, right? It's a little bit of Mm. piano and a little bit of singing and a little bit, a lot of bit of comedy and then kind of meta analysis. I don't, you don't strike me as a guy out of ideas. I I guess plots are hard to figure out, but. Yeah, I still get writer's block and all that stuff, but no, I mean, sure. I have plenty of ideas. I just, you know, (laughs) great ideas are a whole separate category. 
Bo Burnham is the writer and director, and Elsie Fisher is the star of Eighth Grade. Thank you guys both so much. Appreciate the yeah, time. Thank you. Thank very you. Much. And now the spiel. Yesterday I talked about the advisability of believing accusers just because they are accusers and historically accusers have been disbelieved. Defaulting to belief. And that brings with it problems. I think U.S. senators should know it brings with it problems. I think they probably know this, but they're trying to make or win some other points. Maybe laudable points, socially speaking. Some listeners wrote in to reject my framing in the specific instance of Christine Blasey Ford. They said they're not defaulting or suspending critical thinking and believing Christine Blasey Ford. They look at the facts around her accusations, that it hasn't been contradicted, that a version of the accusations came up in therapy sessions years ago, that she has uh, documented actions of a woman who fears another A or another sexual assault. They say this adds up to something believable. And I'm using critical judgment to get there. I get that. That's why I say if I had to choose right now between belief or disbelief, if you said to me, Mike, do you think she was assaulted by Kavanaugh or not? I would say probably. I think it's more likely that it did happen than it didn't happen. But the point is my level of certainty would be very, very low. So low that I would be extremely willing to believe that I was wrong. Now, one listener, Joseph McCoy, he pursued this point saying that his belief is based on not credulity, but critical thinking. He said, also, what is it about a couple hours of questions from the Senate Judiciary Committee that makes you think it will get to the truth? It seems like questions without an investigation is a setup for a he said, she said situation that can be waved away. I think that's likely. I mean, I think that's the likely outcome of what questions from the Senate Judiciary Committee are going to be. I mean, the testimony might embarrass Kavanaugh, might embarrass uh, Christine Blasey Ford if she seems dishonest. It might discredit a senator who seems too harsh or too credulous or too incredulous. But yes, it will probably not lead to a level of anything approaching certainty. I mean, how can it? They're not even calling Mark Judge. They're not even doing a real thorough investigation. But we should conduct a full and fair hearing because not doing so would be a horrible statement and also because it might help. But I do get the concern that all the hearing is essentially is window dressing for those who want a chance to vote to confirm him and who are pretty sure that there'll be enough uncertainty to say, oh, I can't disqualify him. But I think this brings up a point that's underexplored. John Dickerson got at it with this question to Trey Gowdy on Face the Nation. Let me ask you about what standard one should use in trying to uh, sort through all of these facts. This is not a court of law. What's your feeling about the standard that should be used to determine who's telling what the truth of this is? Now, Trey Gowdy said it's a good question. And he ultimately answered that he thinks the standard should be beyond a reasonable doubt. And he said it ought to be, if you're going to take away someone's freedom, it also ought to be a high burden when you're going to impact someone's reputation. Okay, those are two wildly disparate things. Jail versus some people looking down on you as you 
in the case of Kavanaugh as you sit on the second highest court in the land, the U.S. Court of Appeals. If Kavanaugh didn't do the things he's accused of, then it will be an injustice, a slight injustice, slighting him as he attempts to become a justice. But really, how different will his life be? I'm not cold hearted here. This is, again, the scenario where he really didn't do these things. He's accused of them. He's not allowed on the Supreme Court. I think his life will be that conservative stalwarts will believe him and think of him as a martyr and liberals who loathe his jurisprudence will find this other thing to loathe him for, that it is an inaccurate thing. But how much should he really care about their opinion anyway? The big thing is that he won't be on the court. That's the big injustice if he really didn't do these things. The blow to his reputation, really, really small. I mean, look at Clarence Thomas. There is a guy who has concocted a martyr's complex around wrongs for which there is a lot of documentary evidence that he actually committed. I mean, the big thing that would affect Kavanaugh's life and ours would be that he wouldn't be on the Supreme Court. It's a little tiny bit reputational, gigantically occupational. But there's another reason why reasonable doubt cannot possibly be the standard to disqualify Kavanaugh. And Trey Gowdy can't even possibly believe that reasonable doubt should be the standard for assessing Christine Blasey Ford's accusations. In a court... You have reasonable doubt. That's the highest standard. One step down is clear and compelling evidence. One step down is preponderance of the evidence. Obviously, the default in most matters of judgment is preponderance of the evidence. It's a fancy phrase for saying, what do I believe happened? What's more likely than not? If it is more likely that Brett Kavanaugh attempted to rape Christine Blasey Ford, then of course he should be kept off the court. Chuck Grassley said as much. Can you imagine Trey Gowdy saying, well, I thought it was likely that he tried to rape her, but uh, since my threshold is beyond reasonable doubt, I still would vote for him to be on the court. He'd never even utter those words, and this guy's retiring after this term. I want to say this. I think preponderance of the evidence is too high. There's another lower standard, substantial evidence. I don't know exactly what percent to put on these standards. I know this. Preponderance of the evidence is anything more than 50%. And then there's been a lot of uh, study into what reasonable doubt means in terms of a percentage. There are studies that you can do to figure out how jurists think of beyond all reasonable doubt. And 95% is the number that most of these studies come up with, around 95%. But what if you thought there was a 40% chance that this sexual assault happened? Would it still be okay to confirm him? What if it were a 30% chance? If there's a 30% chance that you're voting for a person who could become a justice on the Supreme Court, would you still vote for that person? Know this, If there were two justices or two potential justices that came before you and you thought they each had a 30% chance of committing some horrible crime, then it's more likely than not that one of them would have committed the crime. So I don't know what the lowest number is that you would accept as an acceptable chance that the sexual assault actually occurred. Is it 10%? Is it 2%? 2% is an interesting number to think about. Ponder this. Let's say every Democrat votes against Kavanaugh and the Senate needs all 51 Republicans to confirm him. If 51 people press a button and that button has only a 2% chance of electrocuting them, it is more likely than not that one of those people will be electrocuted. Look, I acknowledge this is getting kind of metaphysical. We're not talking about all senators playing 
percentage odds, which has a distinct 2% chance. This isn't a game of Plinko. And I don't mean just in terms of seriousness or the stakes. I mean, in conceptualizing this, this is one thing that happened with 1% chance that it happened. Only there's not really a chance it happened or it didn't, right? The thing either happened or the thing didn't happen. But I'm talking about the judgment that senators make and the acceptable percent that they are wrong. So what I'm saying is, if you were to be a good person, a responsible legislator, uh, fully executing your responsibility to advise and consent, if you think there, there is any reasonable chance that this happened, define it how you will. I would say somewhere around the mid to high single digits, then you should probably vote against putting Kavanaugh on the court. Unless you're willing to say, look, it may have happened. I'm okay with voting him onto the Supreme Court despite my doubts. Now, what the senators will say is, I have no doubt. But what they will mean is, I don't even care to explore my doubts. I just want him as a damn justice. Justice be damned. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. They do a good job despite not fully being out of their awkward phases. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She is a practitioner of the largely controversial Eastern philosophy of stretching before jogging. We would like to credit Elsie Fisher. She is the composer and performer of the music that you heard after her interview. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He understands a lot of things, but that does not include middle schoolers. The gist. As an eighth grader, I would get kicked off the morning announcements for offending the sensibilities of some of the stodgier homeroom teachers. That is not a joke. Also, in my eighth grade yearbook, I was predicted to be the future valedictorian of the Howard Stern School of Broadcasting. So what I'm saying is don't worry, eighth graders. We all have the capacity to change one to two percent. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>